memorized many years ago, memorized it in the King James Version. It was the first thought that came to my mind this morning when I waked up. First Peter, the fifth chapter and the seventh verse, King James says, casting all of your care upon him, for he cares for you. The NIV, cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. He doesn't just say, delicately place it on the altar, but to cast it. To take it like you're throwing a rock. Cast all of your care and all of your anxiety upon him, because, and here are four words, here are four words that are the central truth of the Christian faith. Listen to that. The central truth of the Christian faith, the last four words of that verse, he cares for you. Dear Lord Jesus, may all of us be reassured in these moments of worship that you care, deeply care, care so much that you carried a cross for us. And we come to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this is a Super Bowl Sunday. There are two minor league teams playing this year, but uh, <laughs> uh, I wanted to have a super testimony from someone who is truly a super athlete and who is a devoted Christian and my friend Bill Rogers. Bill, come up here with me. Bill is the pro, the golf pro at the uh, San Antonio Country Club. And I want you to know a little about his story. How many of you play golf? Now, I, I know there's a difference between being a golfer and playing golf, but how many of you play golf? May I see your hand? All right, ho hold it up there. How many of you don't know a thing in the world about it? Hold up your hand. Oh, oh no. Oh, Lord, forgive them, forgive them. <laughs> they know not what they do. Uh, no uh, wonder they're so happy. <laughs> uh, Bill, uh, we'll get to some of your exploits in a moment. Well, where were you born? And tell us kind of how you got started in life and to college and some of those things. Okay. Born in Waco, Texas, and I know that makes Buckner happy. Jerusalem on the brasses. <laughs> uh, my father and brother uh, were good golfers and uh, being athletically inclined, I was able to pick it up at an early age and uh, went through kind of the normal steps, playing junior golf, went to high school playing golf, and then ultimately got a golf scholarship at the University of Houston, played golf there. And I knew it, uh, at an early age that really professional golf is uh, what I want to do, competitive golf, that is. So in 1975, I began playing competitive golf on the PGA Tour. And uh, that's kind of the early part of it. Oh. Uh, what, what were the, where all did you play during those years when you, how many years did you play? And tell us a little about some of the, some of your victories, saving one that I want to set up for you here in a moment. Well, I played 14 years on the tour, and I guess by standards of those that have had some success in golf, uh, probably that wasn't that long, but it seemed like an awful long time to me. Uh, but I played in every corner of the earth, I think, Australia, every place in Europe, Asia, uh, and in 1981, I didn't leave one out. I, I traveled everywhere they offered that almighty dollar, and, and probably as a result, that's one reason I'm standing here with Buckner Fanning today, because I burned it up good, and, and for that insatiable desire to, 
to, to get there, uh, I really probably had an abbreviated competitive career. But I've, I've been just about everywhere playing golf. I know uh, those of you who know golf uh, know this. Those of you who do not know. The number one golf tournament in the world, worldwide, the number one golf tournament and the oldest golf tournament is the British Open. Now, in America, we have the Masters and the National Open and the PGA. And those are all very important, and they now have some worldwide significance. But in the history of golf and in the world of golf, the British Open is the number one golf tournament in the world. And tell us the year you were there and how it happened. 1981, I was the British Open champion, and as a result, as Buckner mentioned, uh, you're looked upon as the world's champion. And as a result, as I mentioned, I traveled to every corner of the earth uh, showing them the champion. And especially when they had offered that money, boy, I'd really go. And, and, and uh, I kind of burned it at both ends, I think, as a result, Buckner. And, uh, you know, I had an interesting ride. I uh, kind of arrived at a point in my life where uh, early on after that, uh, even seven short years after 1981, I was retired from competitive golf. As I reflect back and look upon that, I kind of saw myself as uh, someone that I really didn't like, uh, somebody that uh, I really couldn't even stand. And I knew I had some things going on in my life uh, that I had to resolve. And fortunately at that time, I uh, uh, retired from competitive golf, uh, fell into Christian uh, fellowship with some good friends in San Antonio, began to attend Bible study fellowship, which is impacting and life-changing for me. Began uh, attending church Sunday school at uh, the Methodome over there, as we referred to it. Yeah. it? And just a lot of life-changing events happened uh, to me as a result of seeing where I was and where I wanted to go. Uh, I was, after that uh, success, I wanted to get there, that kind of that that uh, insatiable desire, as I call it. But uh, ultimately, I'm grateful that I've landed on my feet here and uh, able to be doing some things of some, uh, significance. Uh, in fact, being able to share somewhat of a testimony before you this morning and being invited to your beautiful church. What? Uh, tell us about the parking lot in Tallahassee. In 1976, I received Christ into my life. It was early on in my career, and there was an emptiness there. I knew there was a void that needed to be filled. And I was really an on-fire Christian for exactly two weeks. Uh, I didn't understand what, uh, what it was. I knew that uh, it was something that I'd wanted. I'd heard the good news in a tour Bible study and, as a result, received the Lord into my life, thinking that that was what I needed. And, in fact, it was what I needed, but I'm not so sure that really uh, deep down inside I might not have been looking for some help with my golf game, to be honest with you. But... Uh, uh, that was something that was instrumental, obviously, uh, for a very short period of time. And as I reflect back on uh, retirement and competitive golf, I'm able to see that a committed Christian journey, one that uh, follows Christ in all that I do and, you know, try to honor the kingdom of God while I have the opportunity is something that is meaningful for my Christian journey and, you know, kind of in a capsulized version. That's where I've, uh, I've landed and, you know, hopefully... Uh, will continue on that journey. That doesn't mean that uh, those challenges and obstacles aren't still there. I'm still negotiating those. You're active in FCA, yeah, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Been, been, uh, been fortunate to have been involved in that, and gosh, what a ministry that is affecting, uh, you know, the, the youth of our land uh, effectively and, and, and uh, ministering the, the importance of Christ in their lives, and it's a wonderful ministry, as so many of them are. Well, Bill, who you are and what you've done and what you're doing is a testimony, <clears throat> excuse me, to all of us and a help to all of us 
And aren't you glad there are people like this in the athletic world, successful, who see that the biggest thing to win is to know Christ as your personal Savior. And we're glad you're here. Wonderful. Thank you very much. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the disciples had asked him how to pray. And he said, this is how you should pray. And we call it the Lord's Prayer. It's really the model prayer. Now, I want you to say it with me. I want you to pray it with me. But I want you to really pay special attention to the words that we say in this prayer, so often taken for granted because we've heard it so much and uh, prayed it so often. But listen to the words because I'm going to come back. They have a very important and succinct application to what I want to try to speak about this morning. So together, let's say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In a few moments, we'll come back to one of those phrases there and how applicable and appropriate it is for me and for you and probably for all of us. One of the things that I have been impressed with was re-impressed with uh, being in Waco last um, Sunday, uh, preaching at the First Baptist Church there and having meetings with some people. Uh, it came to me in a fresh way and some questions that were asked and some questions that I'm periodically asked, either in letters or on the, on the telephone, and questions that come up in some Sunday school classes. I know that's true. It is difficult even for those of us who have been singing Amazing Grace for as long as we could speak, who have heard sermons on grace, who know passages of Scripture on grace, still do not comprehend the grace of God. I don't believe we can preach too often about the grace of God. Now, the technical term is unmerited gift, undeserved gift. But all of us, most of us, maybe all of us, have the idea that somehow, now we know that song and we know verses of Scripture about it, and I'll turn to one in a few moments, but we still have that way back in the back of our mind that we have got to do something ourselves. I mean, it may be some little something, some little something we ought to stop doing or some little something we ought to start doing that something has to that we have to have some part in it. And a lot of us have grown up with sort of a perfectionist attitude toward life anyway, and that somehow I have something to do with my salvation, with God's grace being somehow earned. Even if I only by my good works, by reading the Bible, going to church and praying and giving money and all of that, that somehow by doing that I may earn maybe 15 seconds in heaven but then, then that will sort of satisfy my ego that I had something to do with it. My friend, you have nothing to do with it. If you had anything to do with it, 
If by any works which you have done, good works, noble works, religious works, church works, if you have anything to do with earning your own salvation, it's not a gift. It is not a gift. Grace is receiving what you do not deserve. Mercy is not receiving what we do deserve. You and I are saved by the grace of God. Now, we, the one reason we have trouble with this is because we grow up in a society that is based upon meritorious deeds. I mean, you make good grades, uh, you get a scholarship. Uh, you make a lot of sales, you get promoted. You do well in the military, you get promoted. The whole idea of our secular world is that you have a lot to do with your own success. And that's true in the world in which we live. That is true in the secular world. But that's why it's difficult for some of us to move out of the secular mentality when it comes to the love, the unconditional love of God, and the inevitable corollary of unconditional love is God's unconditional forgiveness. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and if you would like to look at it in the Scripture, turn to page 1157 in the Bible there in the book rack in front of you. A great verse of Scripture that you have heard. Some of you have heard a dozen sermons on it. I know I've preached more than a dozen myself, and I need to remind myself of it. I need to be reminded of it periodically because all of us, because of the, 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 of the persistence of our ego, have a tendency to feel like we've got something to do with earning the grace of God and earning salvation and earning heaven. Listen to it. For by grace you are saved, you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. Not only is grace a gift, but faith is a gift. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And to emphasize that, he adds a phrase, not by works of righteousness which we have done. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Through works, not through works, so that we cannot boast. But we want to boast. Our old ego wants to take some credit for what God does for us. Now listen, there is no way in the world you can get more love out of God than anybody else. No way in the world anyone here can get more love out of God than anyone else. How do you get more than all? And God's given all of his love to each one of us. Now, whether we accept it or not, whether we appropriate it or not, whether we allow that love to come permeate our lives and direct our living, that's another matter. But you don't get it by your living you get it as a gift. And if you accept that gift, it changes your living. It changes your attitude. It changes your priorities, as Bill said in his testimony just a few moments ago. We have the concept that somehow we, by meritorious deeds, can earn some of God's grace. I remember way back when we first started those television spots 20 years ago, we'd been on for about, I don't know, three or four years. And one day I got a telephone call from a man and he said, uh, Buckner, I've been watching those television spots of yours, and what I want to know is, where's the hook? I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, there's got to be a hook in this deal somewhere. I mean, you're just coming on there, 
And you're saying this is just as presented by Trinity Baptist Church. I said, that's right. They paid the bills for this. But, but I know, I know you're, you're going to try to sell me something here before long. Uh, you're going to want me to write into you so you can get my name, so you can send letters of solicitation to me for money. Uh, are you going to sell cars or Bibles or something? Where's the hook? I said, there's no hook. It's a gift. And there's just some people that are suspicious of a gift. I said, there's no hook. I said, you know the reason there's no hook? It's because Jesus got hooked on a cross to show his unconditional love for the whole world. And on that cross, he said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. God's love and God's grace is unconditional. Well, they're just repeated examples of it in the scripture. You can look in the, in the uh, I believe it's the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Luke when the street woman, the prostitute, came into the dinner party where Jesus was being hosted by Simon the Pharisee and they were reclining, the fa Simon and some of his friends around the table. And you know the story, you've heard it. The woman who came in knelt at his feet and began to weep kissed his feet, wiped his feet with her hair, then poured perfume on his feet. And not a word was said to that woman. I believe that room, you think it's still in here right now? Can you imagine what happened in that moment? And all of those folks were looking at that woman, kissing Jesus' feet. And Jesus was looking into the eyes of every one of those men around that table with him. And he looked across the table at Simon. He hadn't looked at the woman yet. He looked across the table to Simon and he said after some conversation with him to, about this woman, he said, her sins, which are many, he didn't minimize her sins, didn't excuse them, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And I didn't hear her say a word. I didn't hear her ask her. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And then, to emphasize it, to underline it, Jesus turns and looks at her and he says, Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. She didn't utter a sound. No conversation took place between them. And I want you to hear that today. And I want to remind myself of that today. Your sins are forgiven. You say, well, I don't deserve it. That's right, you don't. Neither did she. No one does. If we deserved it, it wouldn't be a gift. It wouldn't be mercy. It wouldn't be grace. Let it sink in. It's the most powerful force in the world. It is the most powerful force in the world, the power of forgiven sin because of the grace of God, not by works which we have done, not by any good deeds that we have done, but by his grace, Paul tells us in Titus, by his grace we are saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, the gift. Well, another event... Uh, the woman caught in the act of adultery. They want to stone her to death. 
Uh, and you know the story also in the Gospel of John. Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. In other words, he's saying you're forgiven. Go and let your life be changed. I'm not condemning you. Where does he get that word? Why, it comes right out of his own mouth in the third chapter of the Gospel of John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You, I do not condemn, he said to her, go and sin no more. Let my spirit, let my forgiveness, let my love change your life and change the direction of your life and the practices of your life. The most powerful force in the world is God's great, incomparable grace and forgiveness. And God's grace is based upon God's unconditional love for each one of, the, each one of us. Augustine said he loves each of us as though there's only one to love. That's such a powerful statement. It's hard to comprehend, isn't it? Sometimes I'm flying in an airplane, I look out, particularly at night, and you just see all the lights of a big city, and you just imagine all those millions of people there, and, and you think, my goodness, how can God do that? Well, that's because he's infinite and eternal, and he loves each one of us. He loves each one of us with all of his love. If you were the only person in all the world who ever needed to accept forgiveness, he would have done everything he did just for you. He loves each of us as though there is one to love. Now, I told a story from Robert Farrar Capon's book some uh, years ago about a man who owned a paint store. He owned a paint store. Let's call him, let's call him Bill. Not, not you, Bill, but, uh, but uh, we'll call him Bill. Good, healthy American name. Bill owned a paint store, and the, it caught on fire. Well, when it caught on fire, what happened? The fire department came and put out the fire. Well, the fire marshal came and said, Bill, you were not living up to the standards required uh, by our code here in the community. You need to get those up. You're going to be fined because uh, you haven't lived up to the code. And also, I'm sure your insurance is going to go up, and you lost a lot of your inventory, and you lost some business. Uh, so you need to kind of start straightening this thing up down here, get this place safe, get it going. Well, Bill worked on it some, tried to get it up to code, all that sort of thing, caught on fire. Again, what happened when he caught on fire? Here comes the fire department. They come down there, and they put out the fire. Here comes the fire marshal again, citing him again. Here comes the insurance adjuster saying, oh, man, here's how much you lost, and your premiums are going to go up. Lost inventory, lost job. The consequences of not living up to those standards, he, he kept trying to do it, but every time he failed, the fire department would come and put out the fire, wouldn't it? So he had three fires. He has four. He has five. He has ten. He has a thousand. What does the fire department do? They keep coming to put out the fire because it's the business of a fire department to put out the fire, irrespective of how it started, who started it, what the conditions were involved in it. The fire department always comes to put out the fire. Now listen, God's grace is an infallible fire department. He will, without fail, show up to forgive you of all of your sins, known and unknown, conscious and unconscious, past, present, and future. Your sins 
are gone. Let it sink in. Now, all of that, in a way, is introductory to what I really want to emphasize this morning. Some of you are saying amen to that, and you know that, and you agree with everything I've said. Now, listen. Here is the inevitable result of our being forgiven by God's grace. And that's the only way any of us are forgiven. By God's grace and God's love. The inevitable result of that is that it changes our attitude toward other people. God's grace, God's forgiveness for us changes our attitude toward him. He forgives us. He gives us his grace and forgives us. And then he says, now you forgive each other. You read it. You quoted it. Forgive us our transgressions as we have forgiven those who have transgressed against us. dynamite and suddenly it reaches down deeper into our lives and to our attitude and relationship to one another but he's not through if you read the sixth chapter of the book of Matthew forgive us our debts forgive us our sins forgive us our transgressions as we also have forgiven others have you forgiven others as he forgave you unconditionally spontaneously have I no We're getting to where the, where the water begins to hit the wheel down deep in our attitudes. Listen to what Jesus says. Now, I'm not making this up. I'm reading it right out of the Bible. Jesus says, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins now does that mean Jesus is turned into a pharisaical bookkeeper saying okay if you don't forgive this person over here I'm not going to forgive you it's not what he's saying at all what he's saying is what he's saying is if you don't forgive other people you have not really understood what it means to be forgiven by my grace and my grace and my love is to fill your life and now you're to have the same relationship to other people that I have to you. You are to be grace bearers, love givers, forgivers. And that isn't easy. You know it's not easy. I can tell you it's not easy. It's not easy to forgive people who have hurt us. Not easy to forgive people who've broken our hearts. It's not easy. Not easy at all. Martha and I have three children, as you know. And I love them with all of my heart. 
And if any one of them did some horrible, despicable, contemptible, detestable act, if they were on death row in Huntsville, I would hate what they did. I would deplore their actions. I would not defend them. I would not try to make them look innocent. But there is no way in the world you could keep me from loving them. I may not love what they did. I would not love what they did. But I would love them. And I would forgive them. That doesn't mean they're excused from what they have done. It doesn't mean that they're innocent. It doesn't mean that they walk out free. The consequences remain. But I forgive them even if they don't ask for forgiveness. I forgive them for what they have done to break my heart. I forgive them. My heart's still broken. My hopes for them still shattered. But I forgive them. And if I, being a selfish, sinful father, can have that attitude toward my children, how much more does our loving, infinite, eternal God have that attitude toward us and wants to permeate us in such a way that we will be in the world individuals who reach out to love and to forgive one another, even as he has forgiven and is forgiving each one of us. Uh, Christianity Today, the supreme, I think, uh, Christian magazine in the world today, the, the current issue, as a, the main story, is on forgiveness. And I hope you'll read it if you have it, or go to the library and get it. It's on forgiveness, and there's about a six-page article in there. President, uh, former President Jimmy Carter and uh, Desmond Tutu and uh, Elizabeth Elliot, whom some of you will know whose husband was killed. Uh, they were missionaries in uh, Central or South America and her husband was killed and she forgave. She stayed there and stayed as a missionary and continued to minister to the people who had killed her husband. The three of them have set up a foundation, a $10 million foundation for the single purpose of bringing together people in all the various uh, dimensions of life to discuss the power of forgiveness, not only in our relationship to God, our forgiveness from God, but the way we relate to one another. And what they're saying is it affects not only our spiritual lives, it affects our attitudes, it affects our mental lives. And they're even saying, and they're going to do years of study on it, it will affect our health, our physical health. Forgiveness lifts the burden. You say, well, Bugner, I just, I don't think I can do that. I know, let me tell you. The first thing to start doing is to start praying for them. You say, well, I don't want to pray for them. I know, I feel it. I don't like them, God. I know you don't like them. And they hurt me. I, I know they hurt you. And I don't know what it is to be hurt by people you love. Understand? He knows what it is to be hurt by people he loved. I understand, he said. But 
start. Try. And tell, be, be honest with God. You don't need to try to act spiritual when you're talking to God because he can see right beneath all that stuff. Tell him exactly what you feel. Say, God, I'm just as mad as I can be at that person, and I don't like them, and I detest what they have done. But you said that I am to pray for my enemies, and I'm not sincere, uh, but I'm going to start. <laughs> I'm going to pray for my enemies. And just start. Now, you know what? Keep doing it. Now, listen. In all probability, it's not going to change them. It may. That's not the reason you're doing it. It may change them. It may not. They may spit on you just as they spit on Jesus on the cross. And with spittle on his face, he said, Father, forgive them. They may verbally spit on you. You pray for them and forgive them. That's okay. You're not responsible for their response. We're only responsible for our attitude. Pray for them. Now, as I say, chances are it may help them or it may not help them. But I'll tell you what it will do. It will help you. It will begin change your attitude and to forgive somebody creates mental emotional and physical benefits as well as spiritual ones for each one of us you know the word January do you know where it comes from it comes from a Roman Greek god named Janus. Uh, and that's why we, they named January the first uh, month of the year. Janus was a Roman mythological Greek god that was technically the god of doors and gates. But he always was pictured with two faces, one looking in one direction and the other looking in another direction. One looking in one direction, the other looking in another direction. You can see why they used January. Uh, as uh, motivated by the name Janus, by the Roman mythological god Janus. You look back to the year that's just passed, and you look forward to the year that's come. Okay, now we're going to move from Janus to Jesus, and what I want you to do, we look to him for our forgiveness, we look to him for our salvation, we look to him for the gift of life. Now turn around and look at your brother and forgive and pray for and keep looking to him for the strength and the courage and the faith and the power and the spirit to let that love flow through you to reach out to those around you. Mike, can you imagine what would happen in the Christian world? Just, just limit it to the Christian world for a moment. What would happen in the Christian world if Christians began to love one another and forgive one another and pray for one another? What could happen in churches and families if we forgive even as we have been forgiven? Our daughter Lisa introduced me to Elena Van Zant. Some of you who watch Oprah may know about her. I don't get to watch Oprah, but Lisa has seen this woman on Oprah two or three times, and 
uh, got her books and she loaned me a couple of them. Uh, do any of you know who I'm talking about? I see your hands. Some of you do. Uh, this one is One Day My Soul Just Opened Up by Alana Van Zandt. And she's written another book I'm also reading entitled In the Meantime. This is a, uh, this is kind of a, it's called 40 Days and 40 Nights Toward Spiritual Strength and Personal Growth. And I want to read you just, it's dynamite. I want to read you. Now, she came out of, oh, you can't imagine the kind of background she had. If you think, you, you just try to think of the worst background some people have had, and you're describing her, and she's describing herself. Now, listen to what she writes. Talking to herself here. She says, how long are you going to stay mad and hurt? I don't know. But I knew I was not ready to not be mad yet. What she had done to me was unforgivable. Besides that, somewhere in the back of my mind, I actually believed that the longer I stayed mad, the more she would suffer. After a while, what she had done was no longer the issue. The issue was her suffering. She had to suffer. And I wanted everyone to know that she was suffering because of what she had done to me. Right. I wanted to read about her suffering in the newspaper. <laughs> this glee. Oh, wouldn't that be marvelous? Then and only then would I even consider not being mad at her anymore. She must have known I was mad at her because one day she quietly died in her sleep. I wanted to say, good for her. But I was too mad. Many, many years after her death, I was mad. I was miserable. I was still hurt. She was still dead. Now, what kind of sense did that make? Most people believe that when you forgive someone, you're doing something for them. The truth is, when you forgive, you're doing it for yourself. As it relates to forgiveness, you must give up what you do not want in order to make room for what you do want. You must give up anger, resentment, and fear in order to experience goodness, joy, peace, and love. For some reason, we believe that if we forgive someone, they might get to the good stuff before we do. Offering another the forgiveness they need strengthens the spiritual nature in you and in me and in all of us. And I believe that's the reason Jesus told us to forgive other people. He wasn't doing it because he was bookkeeping on us. The reason 
He has commanded us and motivated us and given us the example and will permeate us with a forgiving spirit is because of what it will do for his children whom he loves. He doesn't want us to forgive for his sake primarily or for their sake primarily, but because he wants us as his children to know love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and self-control. He wants the best for his children like you want the best for your children. And you'll never have the best for your children if you do. We'll not, God will not have the best for us if we do not forgive one another even as he has forgiven us. He's not going to hold it against us. He is saying that to motivate us to forgive because it will change our attitude and the change of our attitude will change our relationships, our health, our spirit our peace of mind. Therefore, forgive us, dear Lord, even as we forgive those who transgress against us. Look one way to God and look the other way to your fellow, your fellow man and let God love them, forgive them through you for their potential good and for your absolute good. Forgive for his sake. If you've never accepted him, accept his grace today. You say, but Buckner, I've got to straighten up something first. No, you're never going to get it all straight. You keep trying to do it yourself. It's kind of like that Greek hydra-headed monster. You remember that? You cut off one head, two come in its place. Cut off one, two grow. Cut off one, two grow. You're never going to get it on your own. So just as you are, come. Trust him as your Lord and as your Savior. Come be a part of his church as his spirit motivates you to come. Or maybe to come. Maybe you want to come and kneel like people do periodically. Maybe you just want to do some business with God privately, not speaking to me or anyone else. Maybe you need to phone somebody this afternoon. Maybe you need to write a note to someone this afternoon. You say, well, Bugner, I don't know whether they would like it or not. Write it. If it's in your heart, motivated by the Spirit of God, say it's difficult for me to do this because I still don't like what you've done but by the grace of God I want you to know I'm praying for you and with the help of God I'm going to forgive you it'll bless your life I'll be here to greet you let's stand and sing